You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Good morning and welcome to First Christian. It is my privilege to be one follower of Jesus welcoming all of you into our mission of following Jesus. So if you're here with us for the very first time, we're so glad that you're you're joining us, whether that's online, listening to us on Spotify, or watching us on YouTube, uh, your presence with us. Uh, you just need to know we're not perfect. We don't have it all together. So if that is like you are, then you're in the right place. Now, today, I, I have to come clean about why your preacher was at church in his PJs on Christmas Eve. Now, some of you, that's not a big deal. I mean, you ask the Frasers, they were, their whole family was in PJs here on Christmas Eve, right? Onesies, all of them. So, I mean, what's the big deal about a preacher showing up after preaching two Christmas Eve services at 1.30 in the morning on Christmas Day now, at this point? Well, it's not the kind of story that fits into our series, right? I mean, if we're looking at this grand story, this grand narrative of Scripture, Looking at the whole story of God, what does a story of a preacher in his PJs have anything at all to do with that? Because we're focused in on finding this big picture story of God and looking at our little itty bitty stories, common everyday life, and doing it over 10 weeks. That's right. I mean, today we really get into the meat of things. We start in Genesis, we're going to end in Revelation, and that will all be done in only 10 weeks. And so, if you're looking at a big picture like that, that's important, but so also are our stories. And you're like, Brady, you just kind of trailed off there about your confession. I know, I'm trying to build up to it. It's kind of embarrassing, and I'm hoping that all the video footage is gone. So Christmas Eve, we go home. We've got a house full of company. It's, it's after midnight. It's been a long stretch of time. We've got people sleeping on the floor and in every room in our house, and my sister comes after I'm in my PJs and in the bedroom, and she says, Brady, the toilet is not flushing. It's like, no problem. I'll just go get the plunger. So I look for the plunger upstairs and downstairs and in the garage. I look, we don't have a plunger. We've lived in Albuquerque three and a half years. How is it that we have not needed a plunger until this point? And so I think, well, I'll just run to the store. Wait, it's Christmas Eve. Lowe's isn't open, Walmart, nothing is open. So do I make an enemy out of one of you? Do I call you? Do I, do I bang on the doors of my neighbors in the middle of the night? And then it hit me. The church, I bet the church has a plunger. I can go up to the church and get a plunger. And so I'm already in my PJs and I thought, well, who am I going to see? I mean, it's just me and Santa at this point. I'm safe. And sure enough, I didn't see anybody on the road. There was no one outside. No one was here. And I got the plunger. Now, I tell you a story like that, and it's not really clear how that connects to anything. And you're right, it really doesn't. (laughs) But this is a point that I want you to get from this. As you look at the Bible and as you read some of these stories, and some of you are going to jump in, And you're going to do the readings. This is the week where if you're going through the workbook on your own, you get to read maybe a chapter, maybe more each day from Scripture. And I'll tell you what's common in reading the Bible is that you get 
caught up in the novelty stories that are there, the, the plunger stories. And I know I'm going to get questions like, Brady, tell us why it is that God seems mad in the Old Testament. Why does He say don't intermarry among cultures? Why does He say no mercy? Why, why all this burning? And I know you're going to say, I've got all these questions. Well, instead, I want to lift your eyes up to the fact that the God behind this story, the God who's the main character in this story, created us, makes promises to us, delivers us from our difficulties. In fact, these obscure stories that some of them are 4,000 and 6,000 years old are still told today, every day. And they're still told in a way that's meaningful to us in this point. And so I kind of want to get you to not care as much about the plunger stories of the Bible because no one really cares about the preacher answering a Bible trivia question on who are the Jebusites. Nobody cares. But this, the story of Scripture is a story of God. A story of God's action through common, everyday people like you and like me. And so, together, in our routines, in our rhythms of life, we're going to enter this in our groups and in private study to really look deeply. And I know you've got a choice. You can say, I don't have time for that. I don't want to be in a group. Don't have time to read. Don't want to read all those chapters of Scripture. And we have choices. And sometimes more and more in today's world, we're prone to cancel the doctor's appointment, to skip church, to not be involved in things that draw us out of the safety of our homes. And I'm inviting you to take that risk, to journey with us over these 10 weeks and really look deeply into the story. The story of a God who was once beyond time. You and I were not there. It was only God. The God who creates heaven and earth, this main character, chooses to bring into existence human beings. And today I want to tell you three stories about five people. Three stories that tell us about this God who creates, this God who covenants with, and this God who delivers. And the first two people that I'll tell you about are Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. God created human beings. The culmination. Now when you look at Genesis, a lot of us will look at it and see it as poetry, as a beautiful description of how the world came into being. And you may or may not know Adam and Eve, but you look in the mirror and you've, you share distinctive similarities to Adam and Eve. Some would say you share the very DNA of Adam and Eve, and others of you would say, well, it's more of a poetic story. It's telling us what those people were like from the beginning. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you and I were created in the image of God. Genesis 1:26. You and I. That means we share DNA. We're a part of the same human family. We've got red blood, or sometimes purple blood, right? If it's flowing back to the heart. We've got the same white bones. We've got the same, if I could be so disgusting, yellow fat inside of us. Even though our hair thickness and our skin tone and our languages all may be different, we're a part of the same family. A family of human beings that were created like God. Well, the place where this takes place in Genesis is in the Garden of Eden, between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. 
which you can still find today. In fact, a place of modern warfare, I even checked, there was a bombing and an altercation along the Euphrates River t just last week. That place of difficulty and tumult was a place of beauty, a place of being created in the image of God. And God has this arrangement where He's going to provide food, He's going to provide protection, and what we do is we care for what God has given us, to be stewards of it. Now, in this story, it's a story of coming to moral awareness, of learning what is good and learning what is evil. And a lot of times when we look at this, we talk about it being the fall, where everything goes wrong, everything comes apart, where all becomes bad. It's almost as if this is a plunger story, where God's like, yep, okay, you guys got it all mucked up, and God's got to clean up what's been destroyed by human beings. But I want to call you back that everything that God made, he said, was good. But that doesn't change. So it's an overstatement to talk about everything being bad or that it's all fallen because God created all things and made them good. And in this story, we learn many things like Adam and Eve. Adam, whose name means earth. What a great name for the first guy. Or Eve, whose name means mother of the living. They were tempted to be like God. It doesn't take long before disobedience comes in. Tempted to be our own God, to displace God, that God really doesn't have our interests in mind. And really, at the core of this temptation was the idea that if you want to be like God, then you eat of the tree of knowledge and evil. You overlook the little secret that you were already made in the image of God. Eating of the fruit, knowing what's good and what's evil, doesn't change that you were made in the image of God. Instead, we tend to try to build our world based on our own effort, based upon our own striving, and try to determine what is good and evil in our own eyes. But Don and I were young parents, and we had our first child, Nathan, who's now 21, we were, before he could say a word, when he could only just crawl, we decided it was probably time for him to learn the word no. Everyone's got to learn at some point. And we had in our house a peace lily. We still got the same peace lily, actually. And Nathan had a way of crawling to that peace lily and grabbing a hold of the leaves and just pulling them off, or grabbing the flower and pulling them off. So what we would do is just carefully say no, and we would pick Nathan up and move him away. You know what Nathan did. He crawled back to the peace lily. Because once you have that boundary, you just want to cross it. You want to break it. So he would still grab onto the leaves, and we'd say no, and we'd pick him up and move him. And you could almost see the wheels turning in this toddler's mind. And he would crawl towards it and then just kind of look at us. You know, are we going to say no? And the closer we got, we'd say no. Have to move Nathan away. Well, then he got pretty clever as things went on. He would just walk towards the peace lily as if nothing was happened, as if he didn't even see the peace lily, get up next to it, and then sit down, plop right in the middle of it with all the leaves all around him, not grabbing onto it. That's the way it is. Even in the Garden of, Evil, Garden of Eden, we, we called the peace lily the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Because we all learn that there are some things that are good and some things that are not. We learn that there's a path and it's a path that may head a different direction. Now, was the peace lily bad and evil and fallen? No. It was a matter of how he related to that peace lily. God, in his great mercy, didn't just look at Adam and Eve and instantly kill them when they broke the rule of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their death came, but it came slowly and later because God's a God of life. Even in their rebellion, God makes clothes for them as they're aware of their own nakedness. Do you see that even in that early story, we're seeing signs of how God acts in this world? That's the first one. God creates. The second story is God covenants. And you're like, oh, what's a covenant? Well, good question. A covenant is a promise. It's an agreement. It is a commitment. And with Abram and with Sarai, God makes some covenants. It's not covenants. It's not a promise that they asked for. They didn't raise their hand and beg God for these promises. God just gave them. God initiated it. No one said, God, do you swear to make this happen? As if, I mean, who's God going to swear by? God enacts this. He's the one who does it. And he says, in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless all nations through you. All of what God does with Abram begins in a promise. A promise is not the law. God gives the promise, the covenant, first. It's very different. It's a very different way of looking at Scripture to understand that covenant is not the same as law. Now, Abram dealt with a lot of different covenants at his time, at least three. There's one that would be a covenant between equals, kind of like a business agreement between brothers. And you're in a partnership. That's not this covenant that God makes. Another one would be a covenant that a king would make with his subjects. Like, if you'll obey me, if you'll follow the rules, if you'll do X, Y, and Z, then I'll provide you protection. If you'll pay your taxes. It's kind of this someone really in charge and someone getting some benefits from their rulership over them. Now, a lot of times we think that's the covenant. It's not. It's the third one that is modeled after this Abrahamic covenant. It's a grant. It is where someone in great authority gives a gift to someone, a thank you gift, something that's undeserving. It's like winning the lotto. And there's no obligation to it. You're just given the position. You're given the cash. You're provided it. That's the kind of covenant that God makes with Abram. And it's a covenant that comes 430 years before Moses and the law. If you need to check this, you could look at the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, 17 and 18. And we learn that this was all founded on promise, that law is not first, law is not leading the way. Well, with Abram, there's a little bit of a problem. He's promised all this land, he's promised to be blessed, promised to be a great nation. What's the problem? No kid. No kid at all. 
this guy has no children, and so he's having to wait. Now, some of you are familiar with the story of Abram, but you might collapse all of these stories into one when actually it's seven. Did you know that when Abram was 75 years old in Genesis 12, that's when God comes and says, hey, I'm going to do all these great blessings to you. And Abram's like, great, that sounds good, because my life hasn't gone according to my plan to this point. And then God comes a second time. And in this second time, he, he promises to be able to give him some, some special gifts. And Abram says, great, I'm going to build you an altar. And he worships God. That's in Genesis 12, verse 7. Then a third time God comes in chapter 13 and says, do you see this dust? Do you see this sand? Yeah. I'm going to give you as many descendants as the dust on the earth. Okay, well, that's a lot. We better get started on that. God comes to Abram a fourth time as Abram's looking in the dirt, and God says, all right, look up, get your, get your chin out of the, the dirt, look up at the stars. Do you see how many stars there are? That's how many descendants I'm going to give you. Abram says, that's great. When do we get started? I'm ready. In fact, they're so ready that this fifth time, Abram and Sarah begin to help God out. Sarah, who's also old, provides Abram her handmaid. Says, you sleep with her. That's, that's how we'll get this child of promise. And they get Ishmael. They do get a child. But in chapter 16, it's not the one that was planned. The next time, Abram is now 99 years old. Are you counting how many years this is? From 75 to 99. 24 years. Still no answer. And God says, you know, I kind of want you to do something, Abram. I, I want to see that you really want to follow me, and so I'd like you to make some commitments to me. And Abram's like, great, how do we do this? Well, we're going to do this thing called circumcision. The foreskin of your penis, we're just going to cut that off, and that, that'll make things better. And Abram's like, okay. Yeah, not just you, but all the men in your group. Okay, well, I thought we were trying to do something. This just doesn't seem like a good way to go about it. No, that's not what Abram says at all. In fact, God keeps going with this sense of humor. Abram, his name means father. Can you believe that? Exalted father, the father of none. And God says, you know, we're going to call you Abraham, which means exalted father of nations. Again, Abram's like, okay. He's, he's a lot better than I would be at this point. Sarah, she gets a new name too from princess that's kind of just a less old sounding name to an upgraded spelling of her name, still princess. And it's at this point that Abram just can't but laugh at what God's asking him to do. Finally, the seventh visit. The seventh visit, he shows up in a human form and tells Abram, next year, Sarah will be pregnant. And this time it's Sarah's turn to laugh. And the next year is when he actually is able to hold this child, the two of them. After 25 years and seven trips from God with the plunger, trying to make things work, God provides the child named, of all things, little he laughs. Little hilarious. Little, as we know him, Isaac. That's the second story. Generations pass. People forget about Abram, but... His people grow. They grow numerous into the millions. And they unfortunately become slaves in Egypt to Pharaoh. And it's like God has forgotten them. 
In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, that's what we hear, that God remembers, oh yeah, Abraham, oh yeah, covenant promises. Now, many hundreds of years later, he hears their cries, he hears their misery, he sees what they're going through, and he brings our third person, our fifth person, our third story, Moses. Is he the deliverer? Well, not exactly. Moses, you might remember, was drawn out of the water as a basket. That's what his name means. One who is drawn out. Moses wasn't the deliverer. He was the one God pulled out of the water. And then he led the people whom God pulled through the waters of the Red Sea. Moses was this one who got the gift of God's name. I am Yahweh. I will be what I will be, says God. And Moses, with these few instructions, including the name of Yahweh, heads into Egypt to face Pharaoh to be able to bring out these millions of people that are slaves. It takes more than a year and ten plagues, I guess ten more plunger trips, if you will, to get these to get the Pharaoh to say, yes, you can leave. Because he says, yes, you can go, and then, no, you can't. Yes, you can go, no, you can't. Ten times, over and over, waiting and waiting. And it's a story that reminds us that Pharaoh doesn't reign. Moses doesn't reign. There's no king or ruler that reigns other than God. God is the one who rules and reigns. It's not natural disasters. God is over them all. And the people in their newfound freedom grumble, complain, aren't happy about the leaders that they are given. They're upset. And so they wander for 40 years in the wilderness. There you go. Three stories of five people that tell us the story of the first five books of the Old Testament. And it's a story that sounds a lot like our story, doesn't it? Of a God who creates us a God who makes promises to us, a God who delivers us even in our imperfection, even when we break promises like Adam did, like Abram did, and like Moses did. These are imperfect people who don't have it all together. And it's with that I want to read to you the verse that I'll draw your attention to. If you don't mind standing for a reading of God's Word, this is just two, three verses from Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you're doing the readings, you may come across this this week. It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that Yahweh the Lord set His heart on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. It was because of Yahweh the Lord loving you and keeping the oath that He swore to your ancestors that Yahweh the Lord had brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that Yahweh your Lord is God, the faithful God, who maintains covenant loyalty with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. You know, when we look at these stories, it's easy to get lost in the plunger stories, in the stuckness of our lives, in the muck that we deal with, 
And sometimes it's easy for us to take this as just a code book, a rule book, and to treat it as how you're bad and how you're good. And this is not a book of guilt and shame, of how you're bad and good. It's a book about learning. If you look closely at the big story, you see that God is in charge, that his faithfulness is what pulls us through. His faithfulness and covenant loyalty is what holds us up. And he is teaching us, teaching us to learn the way of goodness, to want to choose it above all else. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise for loving us so much that you would give life to us and put up with us and constantly deliver us. And we thank you for the life that we share together in Jesus, especially this group of believers here at First Christian with, with various names, with various backgrounds, but all of us are committed to our mission here at First Christian of following Jesus. And so we pray that you will help us to help us bring our stories and offer them to you, to see how our lives connect together with what you're doing in this world. And we pray all this through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.